This is a recording of chapter 12 of Ezra Beta's book, Being Zen. The chapter is entitled, Work and Practice. During my mid-twenties, I worked in traditional white-collar jobs, first as a teacher and then as a computer programmer, but I was not happy. I hated what I was doing and anguished for more than a year over finding my quote-unquote real-life work. I was just beginning to practice, and a fellow practitioner suggested that every time anxiety arose over what kind of work would be right for me, I refrain from thinking about it and instead attempt to feel the physical reality of my life in that moment. At the time, his approach made no sense to me, but I was desperate enough to try it anyway. After practicing this way for a few months, even though I didn't get any insights into what work to pursue, I sensed something genuine about the quality of awareness that was apparent when I put thinking aside and focused on the whatness of the moment. Then one day, almost out of the blue, I realized that my path was to become a carpenter. Even though I had no experience in carpentry, it was clear that in learning to be a carpenter, I would have to address many of the fears and self-beliefs that I knew were holding me back. Trying to make an important decision, such as what direction our work should take, it helps to be willing to drop the endless weighing and measuring of pros and cons. The spinning mind will just continue to spin. The genuine answers can only come from having a clear understanding of who we are and what our life is. But this type of understanding will be clouded until we drop our mental obsessing and enter into the physical experience of the anguish of not knowing what to do. As the light of awareness penetrates through the layers of tension and dis-ease, we encounter a clarity of purpose that would forever elude us if we work solely on trying to unravel our mental world. The attachment to figuring out our decisions through thinking is based on the all too human tendency to seek a ground beneath our feet. When contemplating what our life work might be, our attachment to security and a sense of safety is what drives us. We gravitate toward thinking in the belief that we can avoid experiencing the sense of groundlessness inherent in change. But entering into groundlessness itself is the key to resolving our problem. Our willingness to experience the physical sense of no ground is what will eventually bring us to clarity because it will allow us to see through the roots of our fear. But we can do this only when we're finally willing to give up our addiction to subjective thinking. I'm not suggesting that we throw all our thinking aside. There will always be practical considerations, money, education, and so on, but these logistical factors cannot be our main focus and settling on what our work will be. Perhaps the one question that we don't ask often enough is, what do I have to offer? We are so intent on analyzing what we can get from a job or an occupation that we rarely consider the sense of satisfaction that comes from offering our unique contribution. We could take the question, what do I have to offer as a koan leaving the world of mental analysis in order to enter into the experience of not knowing. Simply raising the question and focusing on the gestalt of the moment 
may not bring any immediate answers, nor is it particularly pleasant since it brings us once again face to face with experience of no ground. However, there is something about being in the moment that is compelling, real, and far removed from the confused spinning of the mental world. A more common difficulty that arises around work is finding ourselves in a situation in which we feel stuck, anxious, or simply unhappy. We don't necessarily want a different occupation, but we constantly question whether to change jobs. In the context of practice, this is an interesting question. Our conventional response to uncomfortable job situation is to believe that something is wrong and look for a way out. But in the practice life, we don't measure the value of something by how much pleasure or comfort it brings. We do, however, recognize the value of distress in that what we learn from our distress can transform us. We know through practice that just because something requires an effort that feels uncomfortable doesn't necessarily make it undesirable. That a situation feels bad doesn't make it bad. From a practice perspective, the case is often just the opposite. If you're having a strong emotional reaction to your job, it's a given that from the practice point of view, there is something of value to be learned. The problem is not simply a job. Of two people doing the same job, one may feel satisfaction while the other feels nothing but distress. Our emotional reaction is pr primarily based on what we bring to the job rather than the job itself. Our reactions are always tied to the baggage we bring in, expectations, needs, and agendas. <clears throat> it's not that we should stay in a job just in order to practice, but we should at least consider what we can learn from a job before we decide to leave. It's helpful to remain in a job as long as you're having strong emotional reactions in order to see through your believed thoughts and conditioned fears. Because one thing is certain, if you leave to go to another job, you will take the same beliefs and fears with you. If staying in a particular job is unrealistic, you can set a time limit on how long you'll stay, aspiring to learn as much as you can within that time limit. Even if we like our work, or at least have no intention of leaving our present job, there are always ways in which we can make awareness practice a greater part of our workday. Perhaps more than anything, this requires a shift from how we normally relate to our work, as separate from practice, to seeing our work as our path. We often forget what our real job, our life job is. Our life job is to become awake to who we really are. When we remember this, we'll be less likely to separate our work from our practice. We'll begin to understand that it's possible to practice with everything we encounter, even at work. To make this shift challenges our long-standing conditioned views and habits. Consequently, the best way to transform the relationship with our workday is by taking small steps. 
This is where mindfulness practice, in which we bring attention to the texture of the present moment, can be particularly helpful. Applying mindfulness is the blue-collar work of practice. There's nothing romantic, mystical, or even exciting about dealing with the nuts and bolts of our mundane and daily routine, beyond the subtle satisfaction that comes with beginning to understand that's possible to practice with everything. We see that picking up a ringing phone, closing a door, becoming aware of sounds, or even going to the bathroom can all be used as reminders to be awake in the moment. Our work then becomes an opportunity to wake up. One of the keys in practicing with work entails looking at the emotional dramas that keep repeating themselves in the work environment. Whatever core beliefs we've developed, whatever our particular behavioral strategies are, they're sure to muck things up at work as much as they do in our relationships. The less personalized environment of work can be helpful in reflecting back to us the patterns we're repeating in every other aspect of our lives. Beginning when I was 11, I worked for my father during the summer for 10 years. My brother and sisters and I were the sales force for his souvenir store on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. Although we were pretty aggressive salespeople, when my father perceived that business was not going well, he would sometimes explode in anger. Unfortunately, the anger was usually directed at one of his children, most often, it seemed, at me. My father was quite powerful when he was angry. He would shout about how I wasn't trying, how I was unappreciative, how I was just going through the motions. When he'd shout like this, everyone in the store would freeze. Then, when he stomped out of the store, the nervous customers, especially the customers I was waiting on, would start buying like crazy. Looking back, this seems almost comical. But at the time, good humor was far from my mind. As angry as I'd get when I felt I'd been unjustifiably picked on, I was nonetheless your typical good boy and would proceed to try harder. At one point, I started listing all my sales and adding them up at the end of the day. I'd show this list to my father to prove to him I was measuring up. For many years, in a variety of contexts, I continued the strategy of making a list to prove that I was worthy. I felt that if I could tangibly demonstrate my success, my productivity, my value, it would ward off the core fear of being judged unworthy. Of course, this strategy, like all strategies of behavioral modification, never really worked. Perhaps it allowed me to achieve external success in that it drove me to excel, but it never addressed my core fear that I was not measuring up the core fear, and all the day-to-day -day anxiety that arose out of it could only be held at bay temporarily. As long as we don't see clearly that we are just acting from pictures, as long as we don't open up to experiencing the layers of protection and fear that underlie most of these pictures, any meaningful transformation will elude us. When I finally started seeing the 
this dynamic for what it was. I was able to approach my deeply ingrained behavior pattern quite differently. And instead of trying to live out of the picture that I had to measure up, instead of following the behavior of making my lists, I learned to bring awareness to the fear itself. Each of us has to see our own version of making a list. Is your style to get hooked into the child identity, needing to please and get approval from someone whom you blindly identify as an authority? Or is your pattern to be busy, busy, busy with the anxious feeling that you're trying to juggle at least one too many plates? Can you see the addictive quality of the busyness, how you use it to validate your own worth, to distract yourself from the underlying fear of being nothing? Although we believe that we have to do everything on our plate, all it takes is a prolonged bout of illness to show us that this is not true. We are not indispensable, and much of what we think we have to do can be delegated, put on hold, or even deleted from our agenda. The problem is not how much work we have to do, but how we're using that work to bolster and solidify our identity. Living the practice life is about becoming free of any restricting identity, especially those based primarily in fear. Perhaps your personal system is based more in worry, whether over job performance, job security, or financial insecurities. Whatever the content of the worries, the real issue is the addiction to worry itself. More to the point is the addiction to maintaining the self. In all these examples, the practice is the same. First, we have to see clearly our specific habitual patterns. Second, we have to see the pictures and beliefs from which we're living. And third, we have to let ourselves experience the fears out of which all these beliefs and behaviors arise. When we start using our work environment in this way, using our emotional upheavals to help us dismantle our self-identity, who we think we are, we can move from being caught in the chaos of the workplace to using that same chaos as our vehicle to become free. There's also the issue of burnout. In burnout, not only have we lost our motivation to work, but we've also become cynical and negative about ever finding satisfaction in what we're doing. In living the practice life, the first step in dealing with burnout is an increased awareness, what we have brought to the job. In other words, instead of focusing on the shortcomings of our job situation or the people we work with, we look at it. We look at ourselves. For example, we can firmly believe that, quote, I can't do the kind of job that I was trained for, end quote, or, quote, I'm just going through the motions, end quote. These thoughts may even be true. However, a strong emotional reaction 
to our situation, your frustration, anger, or cynicism is a clear indicator that we need to move away from blame and focus on what we ourselves have brought to the job. What are our expectations and requirements? Where are we attached to the results of our actions? Where do we think we can control results, make things right, change people? Seeing ourselves as the one who can get things done or becoming attached to the results what we do will surely lead to the frustration and disappointment of burnout because we simply can't legislate how things will turn out. In the meantime, we're missing the key issue. Our attachment to results is almost always based on the need to bolster a particular self-image or to avoid experiencing the fear of failure or the fear of being no one. Sooner or later, we will have to deal with the groundlessness that comes when our false sense of security is challenged or removed. Sooner or later, we'll have to go to the roots of the fears and beliefs that tell us in one way or another that we're not quite good enough and never will be. Practicing with burnout means we have to come to know our motives, our expectations, our agendas, all the basic belief systems that run our lives. It requires us to wake up to all our restricting pictures and identities. It also requires that we learn to face and experience the fears that have been running us. But facing these fears need not be a dark or a grim task. Within the wider container of awareness practice, we can experience these fears with an increasing sense of lightness and spaciousness. We can learn that burnout, like all our endless suffering, is always optional. From a practice perspective, nothing could be more fertile than burnout. I don't mean to imply that all the difficulties we encounter at work are self-induced. There are certainly real challenges that have to be addressed, but our emotional reactions to these challenges are our own. Furthermore, when we stay stuck in our reactions, we are less able to deal clearly with the real challenges of our work. As long as we are attached to achieving a particular result or to being seen in a particular way, that attachment will obstruct our ability to do our job wholeheartedly. It will also get in the way of experiencing the satisfaction as possible when we simply do our best. The more we can bring practice to our work and thereby see through our requirements of how things should be, the more we'll be able to live in a genuine way, free from the compulsions of mindlessness and fear. <clears throat>